0: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
1: What we called when I went to college the chili pepper, because that's what ratemyprofessor.com called it.
2: What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, with the Education Gadfly Show and online at Fordhaminstitute.org. And now please welcome my special guest for this week, Catherine Stevens. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Glad to be here. Catherine, for those of you that don't know, is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, part of the great education policy team over there. Also joining us this week, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Hey, great to have you on. Well, Catherine, I can't believe this is the first time that we've had you on the show, but we think that that is actually the case. Uh, we are excited to talk to you about your expertise in pre-K and early childhood education. We've got a new administration coming in next month, and we want to hear about their plans for this policy area. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. <music> Catherine, tell us, uh, Joe Biden uh, certainly talked about lots of things on the campaign trail. One of them was to expand preschool, as well as to do more on the child care front. So you know, first of all, can you just tell us what is it that Joe Biden has proposed to do?
3: Well, he has two major components to his early childhood uh, care and education plan. The first is expanding and heavily subsidizing child care. So for families, lower and middle income families would pay no more than 7% of their income on child care. Very low income families would pay nothing and there'd be a sliding scale up to a pretty, pretty high income level, up to $400,000 a year. So that's part one. That's from birth to five. Part two is free universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds. There's not a price tag that's been put forward for either of these components for the pre-K piece, there are people who have estimated it would cost about $33 billion a year, which is close to $27 billion more than mm-hmm. are currently spending. So we're talking a big expansion
2: mm mm-hmm. hey, Does he say how he would expand these things? So for example, is he using Head Start when it comes to pre-K or is it Title One? actually? What, what, what's the mechanism here? Are we talking about new programs?
3: Yeah. So this is interesting. The child care, it would operate the way the current child care and development block grant operates, which is to provide subsidies Mm-hmm. They're called subsidies in child care. Mike, in your world, they're called vouchers. Yep. Subsidies to parents to use to pay for child care wherever they want. It could be in a child care center. It could be in a preschool. It could be, you know, United Way community based program.
2: In a church?
3: Any, any, yeah. Exactly. Anything. For the pre K program, which, as I said, will be free for all three and four year olds, is the proposal, just like we have free first grade and free second grade. What's been proposed is a public publicly funded mixed delivery system. So pre-K would be provided in public schools, child care centers, Mm -hmm. family child care, Head Start. That's what the proposal says. But there are a couple of things I want to mention about that. The first is, what's the difference between the child care approach, the subsidy approach, and the pre-K approach? In this case, when they say mixed delivery, they're going to be working with states to establish programs. So there could be a pre-K program in a community-based preschool, but it will be the program that gets the money and then the, the parents choose to go there. And another thing that's interesting is what we've seen is that when states or cities have set up these mixed delivery programs, they end up primarily being in public schools and There's something about the way this plan is put together that to me suggests that ultimately the effect of this, if not the goal, will be to essentially expand the public school system to start at age three instead of age five. The reason I say that is the child care subsidy plan goes from birth to five. So in theory, parents with three-year-olds and parents with four-year-olds could use those subsidies to go wherever they want. The universal pre-K, which will be programs that are set up, and as I'm predicting, almost overwhelmingly in public schools, those parents will not have the kind of choice that they have. And the only reason to set up this pre-K program alongside this voucher program for birth to five is because you have some interest in determining where the pre-K is going to be provided
2: very, that is interesting. And certainly it makes sense that some of the groups that are close to Biden would, would want to see basically age three and four just added uh, to the public school system. And there's pros and cons to that, right? Certainly there's some great charter schools that get to start at age three and four, and you can do a lot of good with that. And, and likewise in the traditional public school sector. Now let's talk of reality here. Let's say the Democrats do take the Senate and, and they're really in the mood to spend. Maybe something like this is feasible. I don't know. Do you see Joe Biden making this pre-K in early childhood, and and childcare stuff, is this a passion of his? Is this something where he would make a priority and put a lot of chits in uh, compared to some other things on his agenda? Or is this one going to fall off?
3: Yeah, my my take is that it is going to be a priority. And in particular, I expect that the Biden administration will scale pre-K up considerably. I doubt they'll be able to implement universal for every single three and four year old in the whole country. But like pre-K expanded substantially under the Obama administration, I think Biden is going to continue that. Part of the reason I think that is this is a priority for the teachers' unions. And as the charter school movement has increased and as the recent Supreme Court decision has reduced their membership, they're worried about their member pool. So adding a couple of grades bolsters their standing. I think that's one of the reasons it's a big priority. But if you look at at both the national teachers unions, NEA and AFT, you look at their websites and it is a top goal for both of the major teachers unions is universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. And my guess is that they'll be influential enough in this administration. This will have some legs.
2: Although, again, it's expensive, right? So you've got to get Congress to go along with it. And so the question is, will a Republican Senate, if that's what we end up getting, or even a Democratic Senate where you need Joe Manchin's vote from West Virginia, I don't know, are these moderates? I mean, what's your take on this, David? I think there's a lot of support for
0: it, honestly. I think um, as someone who has a young kid right now and knows a lot of people in this stage of life, people are feeling the pinch of childcare. I have to be honest, I have a slightly less cynical take. I mean, I have no doubt that the unions are in favor of this. (laughs) I also think a lot of other people are in favor of it for legitimate reasons. I don't know. I I haven't had that many conversations with Joe Manchin, Mike, so I'm not sure. Uh, But I, I do think this has more appeal than other things that the Democrats might push in West Virginia or wherever.
2: Yeah, I mean, in my view, if you pit it against the student aid proposal, right? I mean, it just seems crazy to me that we're going to spend a trillion dollars or even... Several hundred billion dollars for giving student loans to people who, by and large, have college degrees and are making way more money than anybody else at a time when we're having a populist backlash. So, if the point is there's people out there who are really struggling to pay those student loans, okay. But if the point is to help poor people, helping with childcare, helping with pre K, to me seems like a better sell. Now, again, Catherine, you might say, you know, why are we talking about all this additional spending anyway? This is all with this notion of let's just put it on the credit card for the next generation. But if we're going to put it on the credit card for the next generation, we should actually spend some of the money on them, (laughs) not on people who are already out there in the workforce, in my opinion.
3: Well, you know, Mike, I agree with you that spending money to advance the most disadvantaged children in our society is worthwhile, credit card or otherwise. It's an imperative. The problem is pre-K is not going to accomplish that what pre-K will accomplish is make people like our good friend David happy. So parents who are from middle and upper middle uh, income parents who already have access to good schools, their first grade is good, their kindergarten is good, and their pre-K will be good. One of the gigantic problems with this plan is, of course, what they're describing is they are going to be providing high quality universal pre-K. You'll never hear universal pre-K said without that high-quality adjective added on. But here's the problem. Do we have any evidence that it will be possible to provide high-quality pre-K to the kids that you were just re- were talking about? To yeah, dis- yeah. yeah just three four-year-olds. Right. We haven't yet been able to provide high-quality universal kindergarten for all five-year-olds mm-hmm. or high-quality universal first grade for all six-year-olds. If we can't do that, mm-hmm. what makes us think that we can <laughs> provide high-quality pre-k for three and four years yeah.
2: we, we just we're just going to try harder we, we just haven't really tried so that is your take if for conservatives let's say or republicans on capitol hill that the position should be maybe a preference for supporting the child the expansion of the the subsidies for zero to five that that is at least something that is more neutral in terms of where parents take that dollar it's uh, you know it, it would be as helpful to a church pre-k as it would be to a traditional public school so that is if we're going to invest more money in young children that's where the investment should go
3: yeah and it should be targeted at really disadvantaged kids yeah like targeted at disadvantaged birth to five you could provide much higher quality yeah you could provide programs that had coaches able to work with parents Mm -hmm. to support the home environment all the evidence we have is that is the way you improve the prospects of disadvantaged kids We already know that for a lot of kids, sending them to school when they're five isn't working out. You have been one of the people in the country that's worked hardest and longest on this. And one day you'll succeed, but you haven't yet, right? right? So to lump in now three and four-year-olds who are going to go to school instead of five, they go when they're four, they go when they're three. It's not going to help them anymore. And there is some evidence that for some kids, it can actually be damaging. When these plans, in terms of helping disadvantaged children, that is such a misrepresentation of the design and effect of these plans, mm. urging on a lie.
2: Well, and it's it's the universal word, right? It's this notion that, you know, some people on the left really feel like a, a program for the poor is a poor program. So, you know, this is something that we want to make uh, available to everyone. But, like, you know, but, but the issue is we already have middle class and upper middle class parents are used to paying for childcare and for pre K. So, do we really need to give them this uh, freebie?
0: I've got to push back on several fronts here, guys. All
2: right, but make it quick, David, because we're running out of time.
0: Well, okay, but this is going to be the interesting part of the podcast, Mike. So there's a pretty strong argument that things that are universal are, I think, politically unassailable. If you look at politics of Medicare versus Medicaid for the last 25 years, I think many people feel, not unreasonably, that if you make the thing ver- universal, then it'll stick. Basically, yes, upper middle class parents, their kids won't really improve and that money will be wasted in some sense. But, you know, you won't have to target, essentially go to poor families and say, prove that you're poor and then defend this program from the sort of ebb and flow of, of politics for, the, you know, every election cycle from now until forever. Right. I just feel like there's a case for it.
3: Of course, things that are universal are much more feasible. However, that's an entirely different question than is this good for the most disadvantaged kids? We have K-12, obviously, the public school system would have been gone a long time ago if it weren't universal. It's just unfortunate that it is ill-serving many, verging on most disadvantaged kids. So there's an example of something that has great staying power because it's universal that is hurting children. So we know that's possible. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is there really is not rigorous research that shows that pre-K is beneficial to disadvantaged children. There is correlational research that shows that for year olds who have parents who care enough about education to find a pre-k program, get them in, get them there every day, that those children who have the same parents when they're in high school are doing better. There have been two randomized controlled trials of pre-K, the Tennessee pre-K and Head Start. They both found the exact same thing, which is that when you, when all the children have the same parents, when all the children have parents who wanted them to go to pre-K, when they actually did go to pre-K, they did a little worse. So it, it sounds good. I wish that it worked but I think we're fooling ourselves to think that this is in an anything close to an effective, much less efficient way of helping the kids who actually need help a lot.
2: And that's well said. Well, look, we could go on and on about this one, but we will leave it there. It's, it's an important conversation. It'll be great <laughs> once we get to January, and especially once we get past this horrible pandemic. Maybe we can have some really wonky discussions as a country again about where we should put these additional dollars. If we decide this is a good time to spend public money because the interest rates are so low, the need is so high, how do we invest that money in the neediest Americans in the way that will do the most good? And, you know, we've got these notions here again pre K. Child care, student loans. We haven't even talked about other things like nutrition, housing, et cetera. Um, And how should we balance that with some of these initiatives that might end up, as we would say, squandering some of that money on middle class or upper middle class families that don't need it? These are all important questions to have. It will be wonderful to be able to get back to these kinds of policy debates once again. So thank you, Catherine. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. All right, again, Catherine Stevens at the American Enterprise Institute. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. (laughs) Adam Tyner, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Adam, thanks again for filling in for Amber. We so appreciate it. Hope that you are doing well as you get ready for the holidays. Is it starting to look like Christmas there in Mexico City where you're living and working?
1: Well, not there's not like snow on the you know icicles hanging from the rooftops <laughs> or anything, but uh, there's a little Christmas cheer in the in the air and we got a little fake tree going on in the living room. so
2: all right, yeah, I like it. Well, what you got for us this week, Adam?
1: Well, it's the holidays, and it's been kind of a stressful year with COVID and everything else, so I thought we needed some research that might lighten the mood a little, and so today we're going to discuss what we called when I went to college the chili pepper, because that's what RateMyProfessor.com called it, at least until some killjoys got them to ban it. But anyway, we're going to talk about a new paper in the journal Economics of Education Review called Beauty Premiums Among Academics.
2: Oh, I like where this is heading, Adam. Yes.
1: There's a lot of research literature that shows that attractive people like us get better ratings for job performance and make more money.
2: Uh, This only works because we have resisted going to a video podcast. so, So yes. Okay. Anyways, go ahead, Adam.
1: Researchers have shown that this carries with teacher evaluations as well. And there's always been question of whether it was possible that there were differences in actual performance for better and worse looking people. And that's not totally implausible if you think that attractive people might be more likely to be like the teacher's pet. So they learn more or they might get more opportunities for public speaking and then they're better at that as a result. We're talking this about students, study,
0: not teachers?
1: We do not rate student attractiveness. And okay. I'd like to see the IRB for, for, okay. for that study. <laughs> Dude, no, we're talking about teacher attractiveness here. Okay. And the question is whether teachers who are more attractive are more effective, or is it possible to tease that out? And so this study is able to isolate the independent impacts of performance and attractiveness on teacher evaluations through a methodology that's really not just clever but also really apropos because they leverage the difference between in-person and online instruction to tease out the effects of teacher efficacy. Presumably, teachers who are more efficacious in one format would also be more efficacious in the other so they can see if the in-person experience is what's making the attractive teachers get better evaluations. If so, that's evidence that this is really about student ratings being biased against less attractive Teachers or towards more attractive teachers if you prefer.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. When we're doing anything by Zoom these days, though, we are staring at one another's faces. Great point.
1: There. And I was just about to get to that. And some um, of us are significantly more attractive on Zoom, Adam. Well,
2: especially if you figured out the touch-up feature, which I highly <laughs> recommend.
1: So this is actually pre-Zoom. This is the data is from a few years ago, and it is for online classes that are they call text-based. So This is in a higher ed context. We're going to talk about some implications for K-12 schools in a minute, but let me just tell you a little more about the the data and then I'll get to the findings. The researchers combined data from student evaluations of about 3000 college courses with ratings of instructor attractiveness that they get from several different measures, including from external raters that they paid to rate and rank the attractiveness of instructor photos, creepy software that rates the attractiveness based on facial symmetry, et cetera. This stuff is for real. And they even include the controversial rate my professor chili pepper as an additional binary indicator of teacher hotness. Now, importantly, these instructors had taught both in person and online, as I was saying, and the online courses were text based. So the students didn't really see the professor's face as much. This was before the video conferencing revolution that came with the pandemic. Okay, now to the results. And if you're woke enough, you might be able to guess a few of these. First, more attractive teachers get better student ratings, as was found in previous literature. For example, teachers with the chili pepper have on average 28% of a standard deviation higher evaluation scores from students. But is this because of bias from students or because hot teachers are actually better? To answer that, they compare the effects of in-person versus online courses for the same teachers, and they find that the effect is only present in the face-to-face courses. This, means, oh this means that the so-called beauty premium is only present when that beauty is being revealed to the students. In other words, this is evidence that's really about student bias, not about better-looking teachers being better at teaching. Now to the gender differences, and I'll wrap with this. Is the bias against women and men equal when it comes to looks? And is that a stupid question? Unfortunately, they find evidence of exactly what I would expect, which is that student bias and ratings based on looks is mostly against women. They have all these different ways of measuring attractiveness, so the results aren't the same for all of those measures But good old-fashioned sexism is the main story here, I am sorry to say. I should point out that some previous research they cite found a larger bias against male teachers when it came to looks, so I don't know, that's something. Also, this paper itself finds similar effects for men and women when looking at the famous chili pepper ratings. So, you know, that's something, but really not so much with the others. The other results are pretty consistent that the effect is mostly against women.
2: And Adam, do we know if that... Bias is it based on the student's gender as well, or it, you know, are, are male and female students just as likely to be biased? In
1: That's a great question, and they cannot actually answer that with their data because the data is just the average in the courses for the instructors, and they don't have the student level information
2: yep, well, this is uh, very interesting. I mean, it's it, in some ways, it's classic academic research that that some people would sort of roll their eyes at to say like, do you really think that that somehow you know more beautiful teachers are actually more effective uh, because of their beauty, that there's a causal you know some kind of strange relationship mm-hmm. there? But I, you know, I guess I get it that that you have to examine. And then there is the issue, of course, that this must this plays out in all kinds of fields, right? Beautiful people get hired. I'm sure, at higher rates than than their peers in ways that make a mockery of, of the idea of meritocracy.
0: I think you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to figure out if I should feel more skeptical about student surveys as a result of this. I do feel a little more skeptical, I'm, although I really like them. I gotta be honest with you, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for a lot of other reasons. And I'm trying to decide, can you give us some sense of the magnitude here, Adam? You know, sometimes you find bias and
1: it's it's there, but it's right. to the point where who cares, my impression is, is that it is not like changing an effective teacher to an ineffective teacher unless they're right on the borderline of that it is not a huge substantive effect
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know I think you you really hit the balance that I I struggle with too David which is that the student information is so valuable and yet we do know that there's some bias in there and it's hard to know. One of the things I was a little disappointed with on the paper was that they didn't really struggle with the real world implications of this much. I see this stuff pop up on like the woke educator Twitter feeds that I follow every spring. They talk about how well it's student evaluation time and these things are all racist and sexist and biased. And I think that that's really short-sighted because student feedback can be so valuable. And now maybe that's partly because they end up being kind of high or higher stakes than they should be. But I don't know, when I was in the classroom, I found it so valuable to get the pulse of the students, what was working for them, what wasn't, not because I was going to do exactly what they said, but just because it's good to get that information.
2: Yeah, well, and, and for K 12, you know, of course, we think about teacher evaluations. Now, we are certainly past peak teacher evaluation, right? I mean, we don't have that many places still doing high stakes teacher evaluations, but in those places that do, you could worry about this that the principals or the external raters could be biased in this way. You know, I remember when uh, I I wrote an article about using teachers, using cameras in the classroom to evaluate teachers, and another one uh, where there's some efforts to use artificial intelligence to examine teacher practice in interesting ways. Now, in that case, those technologies were mostly using audio, the ones the artificial intelligence ones, partly because collect a lot less data uh, size that way, but also for, for privacy reasons. But this could be another benefit. I mean, imagine if you asked the external raters to rate teacher performance in the classroom, Maybe we should give them just an audio file instead of the video file. You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, already there's this, there's this cool program called TeachFX that uses audio to and artificial intelligence to, in the moment, on the fly, analyze what teachers are doing in terms of how much of the time are they talking versus the students? What kind of questions are they asking? Pretty interesting stuff. So anyways, it, it just makes you think that, boy, there could be time when I always assume that audio plus video is the best. Maybe uh, audio only is a better approach for this reason.
1: Well, I don't know how it would affect student ratings, but I like that you're trying to come up with something constructive to like limit the bias, as opposed to just kind of throwing this stuff out, which I feel like is always like baby with the well, bathwater. it's
2: bar. like having when when musicians for an orchestra have to audition behind a screen, right, uh, so that you avoid the gender or race bias. Uh, you know, they're going
1: against that now.
2: Right, right. Because mm. it hasn't worked uh, enough to, to eliminate disparity. Well, look, I, I can
0: just say, guys, I mean, the any measure is going to have some bias. Um, uh, y- y- any measure is going to have some bias. So if the, the adults are probably biased, too. It's not like adults can't see beauty. <laughs> I mean, no, that, I
1: said that's said about
2: right. future evaluation right. for, for principles, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You got to consider, you know, is it really worse than the alternative?
2: Yeah. You know, and, and the other way to go is, right, conservatives would say, I'm sorry, life is unfair. And we just got to get over it. And and so that that is what it is. So with that. <laughs> <on> <laughs> Merry that Christmas, aspect, everybody. I like your <laughs> version of conservatives, Mike. Yeah, okay. There we go. All right. We better wrap it up because we are out of time. But that was really interesting, Adam. Thank you for bringing it to us. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah
0: I needed that, Adam. Thank you.
2: That was kind of fun. All right. Well, until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off.
1: The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas
2: B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.